Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight, Dr. Jason Kinderchuk discusses the Delta variant, masks, and lockdown. Have you ever been the target of a workplace bully? I have. It's brutal. Marianne Kerr joins me to discuss. And all your questions answered about the latest and greatest advancements in type 1 diabetes management with Tom Elliott, Medical Director, BC Diabetes, and Patient Advocate, Hudson Carpenter. And also, is a crush on someone else bad for your marriage? The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. Good evening. It's a scorcher in some parts of the country. Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show, the show that educates everyone about sexual health, how it relates to overall health, making your relationships the best they can be. I am your host, Maureen McGrath. I am a registered nurse, nurse continence advisor, and sexual health educator. If you would like to be a part of the show, feel free to give me a call. The number to call is 1-877-399-9898. That's 1-877-399-9898. You can text me there as well or email me always in confidence at nursetalk at hotmail.com. Although we cover a variety of health subjects on the show, because variety is, after all, the spice of life. This show is not a replacement for a virtual visit these days, or maybe in person, if you're lucky, to your doctor to deal with anything that is ailing you. Tonight on the program, we have so much to talk about. We are going to be talking about a subject that is near and dear to my heart, because surprises everybody. Workplace bullying. Yes, I have been a target, and people are surprised, (laughs) people that know me, that that could have happened to me. But if you really knew me and you knew workplace bullying, you would understand why. We're also going to be talking about some of those masculinity, gender stereotypes that hold us back in life. And we're going to touch upon diabetes. Sugar diabetes has certainly come a long way. And then we're going to talk about a crush in your marriage. Is that something good or bad for you? You got to stay with me to find out about that. And as always, and something we've learned in the pandemic is that mental health is critical. And so we will discuss that as well. Lots to talk about on the program, but right now. And now Maureen's Health Headline. You've heard his voice before. He is none other than the esteemed Dr. Jason Kinderchuk, who knows all things about COVID. Good evening, Dr. Kinderchuk. How are you? Uh, well, you know, it's a good thing that I'm a virologist, Maureen, because this weekend I was reminded <laughs> yet again, I am I am not good in the yard. And rototilling <laughs> is certainly not one of the things that I, I am an expert in by any means. So, no, that this was a, a brutal reminder of that. Oh, my goodness. Well, I'm glad you're a virologist as well and that uh, I'm sorry we continue to talk about this subject on some level, but on another level, I'm actually very glad that I have you as a resource to go to for COVID and especially the COVID variant, which seems to be wreaking havoc around the world once again as we look to Israel, who is back to mask wearing indoors and the lockdown in Sydney. What is going on, Dr. Kendrachuk? Well, you know, it's, it's the unfortunate uh, story that we've heard time and time again about the variants of, of concern. So, you know, we, we saw the Delta variant of concern emerge in, uh, you know, first identified in India, you know, not necessarily, you know, 
convincingly where it first emerged, but it, it certainly has been linked to there. Um, the, the problem with Delta is that it is more transmissible than what we already saw with Alpha, which was the B117 variant. So now what we're seeing is countries that actually have really good vaccine coverage and, and that were you know kind of put on the pedestals being you know the you know the places that that have gotten it right as far as getting through the uh, the last uh, wave of infections, they're struggling. And that's really, I think, what we have to look to is where are they struggling and why are they struggling? Because they, they have good vaccine coverage. Um, you know, that that's not necessarily the area. It's just that game that the pandemic has thrown something new at us. And we're trying to scramble to figure out, okay, what are the cracks that this particular variant of concern are, you know, has been able to slip through? Now, when you say good vaccine, I have two questions here. One is when you yeah. say good vaccine coverage, uh, <laughs> what, what exactly what exactly do you mean by that? And number yeah, two, I mean, my real... second question is, are people getting as sick? But carry on with the first one. Thank you. Sorry about that. Yeah. No, no, no problem. No, that's a good point. So, so Israel has been, you know, above 50 percent. Uh, and as well, I believe the UK has been above 50 percent for people that are fully immunized. So, you know, again, we're, we're getting into that area and, and much closer to that area where we looked at for the you know, initial herd immunity level, which we know has now changed. But certainly it, it tells us that we have a, you know, a large portion of the population that is fully immune from from severe disease and, and from any symptomatic disease. So th- that's that's been great. And certainly the, the Israeli as well as the UK data is certainly suggestive that people that were fully immunized remain protected from symptomatic disease. So that that's great. Tells us vaccines are working very, very well at what we initially had had postulated they, they would do, which was, you know, ultimately keeping people at the hospital. The second problem is though that we're facing is that you know right now that this particular variant has been able to get around um, the vaccines as far as infection. So we're seeing people that are fully immunized that are still getting infected. Um, you know, the, the reasoning behind that certainly goes back to, what, you know, the, this variant of concern and, and what it's able to do a little bit differently than, than the prior circulating strains. But we certainly know those infections uh, appear to be occurring. Um, and that puts us into a bit of a bind because now we have to start to think, OK, well, those people that are fully immunized, now what do we do in regards to recommendations for them in the public sphere? So when, you know, when they are out in, in larger groups of people do they go back to wearing masks or do they not? And I think you're seeing, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, people being very cautious, including WHO, with, with recommendations of, listen, we, we need to keep people uh, masked because we still have a proportion of the population that has no immunity uh, to this virus. And, and if this is transmitting as well as it is, they are going to be hit very, very hard. That's right. If you have a question for Dr. Kendra Chuck, the number to call is 1-877-399-9898. That's 1-877-399-9898. The lines are open. Something I'm seeing, Dr. Kendra Chuck, in my clinical practice of late is people who have severe or have had severe comorbidities have been deathly ill, violently ill with something other than COVID. And now they are afraid to get the vaccine because they are afraid it may trigger um, an exacerbation of colitis or irritable bowel or even diverticulitis um, is what I've heard recently in my clinical practice, that people are afraid that this vaccination is actually going to make them relapse into whatever condition they have had previously. And then the second thing I'm hearing is people who have said, 
I believe I've had COVID already. <laughs> and so I believe I have antibodies. And so I don't need the vaccine. So what do you say to these people? Yeah, there's a couple of things. I mean, so for the, for the first question, you know, in the clinical trials and, and certainly in, in, you know, getting with the, the large uh, you know, mass, popula- uh, mass vaccination uh, um, programs that we've seen, we've seen people that have had, you know, lots of comorbidities and certainly prior, you know, severe infections with other uh, types of, uh, of pathogens. So the vaccines have done very, very well. And in fact, what, again, we have to look at is the fact these are not live attenuated vaccines. So this is not something that is replicating and creating copies of itself and could be a problem for those people that have, you know, any sort of immunocompromise or any sort of underlying issues. These vaccines, you know, are producing a single protein of the virus. So again, all of those potential issues should be minimized. Still worth having a talk with your physician, but it, it certainly, um, you know, has, has been, uh, you know, has been viewed uh, with, within the um, within the sphere of the, the clinical trials. So then we get to the qu- second question about, well, what do people with prior infections do? The problem that we run into with prior infections is we can't necessarily tell whether or not somebody that had asymptomatic disease versus somebody that had severe disease, whether they're going to have the same amount of overall antibody or the same amount of protection. And by the way, we also have to appreciate that what they were exposed to with the entire virus is not necessarily the same as being exposed to the, the spike protein uh, genome itself, because we, it, what we've tended to see in some, at least a few papers have been produced, has been differences in antibodies uh, that have been produced against either of those two conditions. And certainly with the vaccines, we actually see a greater breadth of antibodies against the spike protein specifically, and likely is going to give uh, a better protective effect. So certainly we're seeing some discussion still about people with prior validated infections, whether they should get one dose or two doses. Those will continue onwards, but we still need to get those people vaccinated. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. Dr. Jason Kinderchuk, virologist and all things COVID, is on the line, especially if you have a question. We'd love to hear from you. The number to call is 1-877-399-9898. We have Sam from Calgary, Alberta on the line. Good evening, Sam. Yes, good evening. Thank you so much for taking my call. I just jump into my two questions, if you don't mind. Not at all. Okay, the first question is to do with what I heard on Deutsche uh, Welle, the voice of Germany through CBC a couple of days ago. Uh, according to the last information from the headquarters of the health um, uh, healthcare in European Union who are um, uh, basically looking into this vaccination, uh, in Europe they have uh, reached a conclusion that with this variance, which is called Delta from India, the vaccination, the full vaccination, meaning both shots, the first and second combined, with AstraZeneca, the immunity is only around 60%. This is 6-0. And with Pfizer, is around 84 85%. So that is my first question, that if what the European um, healthcare conclusion has been, uh, what more a person could do with regard to these contagious variants from India? And I go with my second question. Uh, I was going to ask the doctor with regard to Calgary Stampede. As you know, uh, a, a lot of people from all over North America are congregating in Calgary next month for a stampede. 
and whether uh, or not if doctor agrees this is a good place to go participate or they, uh, anybody uh, who is concerned should avoid going to Calgary Stampede knowing that is a place that this uh, virus and this disease especially the variants from India the Delta could easily be contagious and passed around and exchanged by people and then they take it back to wherever they came from and we are going to have a huge spike not only in Canada but also in U.S. Considering the vaccination, full vaccination is not 100% uh, bulletproof with regard to the various variants from India. Great question. Dr. Kendrachuk? Yeah, so for the first question, I mean, one of the things we have to keep in mind is that there's certainly data coming in from all over the place. So I've seen, I've certainly seen studies from the UK that have shown you know, a little bit higher uh, effectiveness for, for AstraZeneca and for Pfizer um, in some of their initial data right now with Delta as compared to, to Alpha. But one of the things we need to consider in the background of all of this is when we're talking about the overall effectiveness and this idea of the, the percentage that's attributed to that, that's in regards to symptomatic disease. So we have to separate out this idea that we are now seeing you know, more severe disease. We're seeing symptoms, but to be fair, those are likely still very, very mild in nature. So the vaccines actually are doing quite well, but we have to think about the fact that, listen, we can't just rely on vaccines. And we've been saying that I think for months now and that vaccines are certainly a big part of this. But we still have, a, a, you know, a lot of work on our side to try and reduce transmission. This idea of trying to, you know, continue to remain, you know, remain um, optimistic with with all the non-pharmaceutical interventions we're using in regards to distancing and masking and hygiene, all those things that we're tired of hearing about, but are still necessary for us to get a, a things under control. The second question in regards to Stampede, listen, I, I I'm cautiously optimistic at the best of times because of what I do. Um, we're opening up here in Manitoba. Certainly, uh, you know, things are going in the right direction with trends, but we know that it takes a very small spark to start the fire burning again. Um, I'm not comfortable myself yet with jumping out into large groups of, of uh, you know, of people in crowds because there are a lot of people still that are that are not fully vaccinated. If we can get those numbers higher, it might be a little bit different, but we have to be very considerate of what is going on and the fact that the trends will change within days to, to a couple of weeks with, with Delta. So we really have to be very fluid with, with what our recommendations are. And certainly, uh, if we start to see things trending in the wrong direction, that we make decisions very, very quickly and, and change our course as quickly as possible. And according Thanks. to, according, hello, uh, can, I, can I say Go one ahead. more thing? By all means. Uh, thank you, Maureen. According to the uh, announcement from Alberta government, this is directly coming from Jason Kenney, the premier, which is to me is absolutely insanity and unbelievable <laughs> that from July the 1st here in Alberta, he is uh, saying that any more mask, uh, wearing mask rule and regulation uh, from the province point of view is no longer in existence. In other words, if you are uh, in a public place, no matter what, indoor, outdoor, you don't have to wear a mask. And as Dr. Kinderchuk just said, a lot of people are not even uh, first shot vaccination, never mind the full uh, vaccination. So having people with either no shot or only one shot, like myself, I only had one shot. So I don't, I don't even have my second one because I'm waiting for uh, my time to come. But... 
Uh, and then we have this uh, new regulation that you don't need to have a mask on. And then if, I don't know if um, Maureen, you or doctor have ever been to Calgary Stampede. This is a huge, gigantic, basically party and gathering of people. And a lot of them, they get drunk. And when they're drunk, they are in congregation with each other. They are hugging. They are kissing. I mean, it's unbelievable. I am just wondering, after the stampede, not only in Calgary or Alberta, but Canada-wide or even U.S., this whole entire delta will be just spreading like a wildfire. And so far, to my amazement, the medical community, meaning... Listen, I, 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 Sam, Sam, I, I've got to cut you off there. Patient zero is, um, it will be the Calgary Stampede. Um, I just wanted to make a quick point, Dr. Kinderchuk, because we only, ha- we only have about a minute left. Um, transmissibility yeah. is less outside. I have not been to the Calgary Stampede. One thing I have not done. <laughs> I'm not going this year. Um, I imagine most of the activities are outside, but some are probably inside. But um, it, that, is, uh, that may be helpful that it's um, outdoors. Definitely out, outdoors and, and certainly with the, with the heat that we're seeing, all those things are going to be a benefit. But to be fair, we yeah. don't need a regulation to have to wear a mask. So you, you can make Absolutely. the choice still. Absolutely. We're going to have to talk next week about the, um, heart, the, risk, the rare risk of heart inflammation. Anyway, Dr. Kinderchuk, thanks so much once again for joining me, and uh, we'll chat next week. Thanks, Maureen. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. Thank you so much for joining me this evening. Um, you may or may not have experienced workplace bullying. When I tell people that I've experienced workplace bullying, not once, not twice, not three times, but four times at least, I think. Am I forgetting anybody there? No, I think it's about four times, and it is significant. But when I tell people that I have experienced this, they're actually pretty surprised. And you might be too, because you probably, although you probably have never met me out there in Radio Land, you probably think, have a certain opinion of me. You might think that I, you know, I have a voice, <laughs> I speak up, that I'm, that I'm pretty confident, that I'm, you know, I love people. That is, that is true, that I am a fairly strong person. And perhaps that is true too in a lot of situations. But when I am, have been bullied, I freeze. It, uh, and I am also very much a target of workplace bullies. They, they see me as a target. I, I was talking to someone, in fact, this week and whose daughter is being bullied at, in the workplace. And I said they, they want to put out her light for their darkness. That's how I have seen it. And, um, and so, I mean, it's, it's been very tough, I have to say. I have experienced uh, serious uh, physical symptoms as a result, uh, anxiety as a result, fear, um, and, you know, sleeplessness. Uh, the, you know, and you can experience physical symptoms and, and emotional symptoms as well. And, and the thing about it is you don't even know what's happening until you're kind of way into it or they're way into it. It's, it can be a psychological injury for many, which was why I was extremely interested and I'm very excited to have on the show tonight, uh, Marianne Kerr. She wrote a great article, a very compelling article on LinkedIn, and I invited her to talk about workplace bullying with, 
bullying with me, and she's on the line. Good evening, Marianne. Hello, Maureen. How are you? How are I'm fine. I'm, <laughs> I'm doing well, thank you. Excellent, excellent. You know, and I am quite fine. Um, I, even though I have experienced this workplace bullying several times in, in my uh, career, if you will, and yeah. uh, it's, it's each time I feel like I uh, am a little bit more prepared to deal with it. Um, you know, I'm partly I'm, you know, I, I, I mean, people will say, you know, <laughs> I, I don't want this to sound ridiculous, but basically I am a nice person <laughs> and right. I like to be nice. I like to be helpful. Call me a people pleaser. Not, not so much. I used to be really, really nice. I had to become much tougher. Um, but that's one of the reasons that I believe I'm targeted by bullies because they also know that I'm not going to speak up to them. Um, although I, I've had to learn how to speak up to them and it, and it's very, very difficult. I was having a conversation this week with somebody and she said, you, you don't speak up. I can't (laughs) believe that. I think of you as somebody who's really strong. And, and I think, but that's who they target. They target the strong because they want to tear them down. I mean, anyway, it's been very tough and I feel my heart racing right now as I talk about (laughs) workplace bullying uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, the memories of it. So yeah. uh, I loved your article. Yeah. Oh, thank you. It's interesting because you know everything I have read about it. I, I obviously me too. Um, I, I say bullied too. I'm trying to start a new hashtag, bullied too. But I actually think people are so afraid to speak up about the experience because we have this idea in our heads that someone who was bullied. Um, what is somehow weak, right? We are, mm-hmm. we are somehow, we're, we're po- probably just poor performers or whiny people. Um, when, when in fact, all the research, uh, says the opposite, that it's, it's usually very high performing people. It's people who have, um, a strong, uh, social justice bent. Uh, it's people who are kind and caring. Um, and it is, as, as you said earlier uh, about your friend's daughter, it's people who shine really brightly. Um, and, and their brightness, their shine, uh, is in some ways um, frightening to someone who is a bully. Right, someone who is who feels that they are seen in uh, as less than if they allow someone else's light to shine. Exactly. I mean, I I can't figure it out. You know, I cannot figure out why uh, people do this, but it's very very common. And in fact, uh, the woman that I was speaking to this week about her daughter. Uh, her daughter is a nurse, and I know that workplace mm-hmm. bullying is very common in nursing across Canada. In fact, they do a lot of research on nursing units because, you know, it's it's been seen in over 40%. And you wouldn't think, you know, you think of nurses as kind, they're the most trusted profession, they're caring, mm-hmm. but they eat their young. That is very well known. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, I mean, it, it's brutal. It's a bit of a rite of passage. Um, yeah. But also... You know, I, I know that uh, I know of another workplace bully as well, many, many. Um, but in this particular environment, there were hundreds of people who were working in this particular environment. And these were big, burly men, okay, <laughs> that were, mm-hmm. um, you know, they were in, they were construction people. They were people from, you know, 
uh, videography. There were people who were, you know, all different departments coming together. Uh, there were set decorators and there was an arts department. And, you know, a, a lot of these are men. And this, there was this one bully who infiltrated the entire system. And one man described it to me, this big burly construction guy. He said, we are like a bunch of chihuahuas around this person, around this female bully. And, yeah. you know, she had actually just wreaked havoc on the entire place. And, and one woman actually said she felt like she was experience, experiencing PTSD symptoms. And, yeah. and she was very scattered. She wasn't able to do her job. She had anxiety. And, and I know that to be true. Yeah, it's it's, uh, you know, the the definition of bully varies uh, from from uh, jurisdiction to jurisdiction. But ultimately, it's about kind of a constant, consistent behavior um, and, and it eats away at the victims. Right. So it's it's not a one off bad day. It's a constant, uh, you know, crushing, soul crushing uh, experience. And. I, I've actually spent less time worrying about the why uh, on the other side because I think, mm-hmm. you know, what tends to happen is the person who's been bullied ends up leaving or being fired within, you know, either of their own volition or somebody kicks them out. Um, and the person who does the bullying carries on and actually their careers usually, uh, you know, continue on an upward trajectory. And so, I, I think I've kind of stopped worrying about their why so much as I, I, I want to spend my time saying, you know, there are 40%, 40% of Canadians have experienced um, or seen workplace bullying in the last week. That's the statistic. So 40% oh, wow. of working Canadians, that's a crazy number. And the impact on our health care system is, is intense. Right. PTSD is real. The trauma is real. And, you know, I was interested to hear you say four times um, I've had three experiences. The last one was the worst. And I think the trauma, um, you you go into work after it's happened once, you become kind of trauma informed in the way that you work. And so you are more sensitive to it. Um, and, And I think that the experiences add on. So to hear you say your heart is racing mine too. When, when we start to talk about it, right, when we start to talk about it, the intensity of those feelings that, that you experience come flooding back. It certainly does. And, you know, for me, uh, the probably the worst of it in the workplace was this one particular incident where this one particular woman had control over, you know, 400 people. And, and you know, she was intimidating and humiliating and threatening to people and and many many of these people felt they were at risk of losing their jobs and and she didn't have any power to hire or fire but what she would say to them would be something like who is your supervisor i am going to get you fired <laughs> and so yeah. they would be just an absolute wreck um, I just want to mention that workplace bullying is repeated, as you mentioned, health harming, mistreatment by one or more employees of an employer, abuse of contact that is either conduct that is either verbal abuse or behaviors which are threatening, intimidating, humiliating, or work sabotage in some combination. And and it's that repeated that that repetitive nature of it. The only reason I'm interested in the whys is because I love human behavior, and so I just have a particular <laughs> interest in that. And I'm just like also trying to figure it out. But you're right; you have to focus on yourself 
and how you can, you know, rail up against it basically. And, and I don't like to be mean to people. And that's why I, I mean, I have somebody who (laughs) in one of the instances, they lied five times about the same thing. And then they altered, Mm. they watered down the lie a little bit. (laughs) And so somebody said, why didn't you call them on it? And it's just not me, you know? And yeah, because yeah, I I don't know, but yeah. And, and, you know, I think uh, there is this sense, you know, when you talk about nursing, I, I spent my career in the charitable sector, the social profit sector, you know, a, a place where you think that you're going to be um, mostly surrounded by people who care about, uh, you know, changing the world, social change and, and advocacy and caring and so on. And, and what I found was exactly the opposite. But perhaps, and the same with nursing, you have, you have folks that go into those who care a lot, who are empaths, who are, um, you know, pr- pr- potentially more sensitive. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean that in, a, in an emotional oh. agility way, as Susan David would say, right? I think it's a really positive trait. It's intuitiveness. And, and those are, 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 are half of the people. And on the other side, you have kind of egotistical people who think, well, I'm the only one who can save the world, right? I am, mm-hmm. I'm a, I'm a, right, I am a nurse or I am an executive director of an organization or what, whatever I am, but I can save the world. And, and, and when those two groups of people kind of come up against each other, I think that's part of, part of what happens, right? Mm-hmm. It's just, uh, and, and it's everywhere. It is everywhere. Every, um, but I think particularly bad in the charitable sector. I don't know why. Oh. Yeah, and, and in healthcare, and in the and film in industry, and and yeah, uh, yeah it, it's the abuse at work is the only form of abuse that is not yet taboo. Much like the other mm-hmm. forms that have been condemned, like abuse of children and spouses and partners. But bullying at work is still considered normal, inevitable, and even necessary, a necessary yeah. business practice. And it yeah. has become normalized. Right. Because as long as the bully is getting results, right, that, that's mm-hmm. what matters, right? As long as that's right. right. And that's the unfortunate thing. We don't care how they get the results, right? We just care that they get them. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. We are talking workplace bullying. Have you been a target of a workplace bully? If you have been, we'd love to hear your story. The number to call is 1-877-399-9898. That's 1-877-399-9898. A few examples of bullying include targeted practical jokes, being purposefully misled about work duties like incorrect deadlines or unclear directions, denial, repeated denial of requests for time off, threats, humiliation, other verbal abuse, excessive performance monitoring, overly harsh or unjust criticism that is meant to intimidate, humiliate, or single you out without reason. Those are all considered bullying in the workplace. And Marianne Kerr is my guest, and uh, she wrote a great article on LinkedIn. So thanks for staying on the line, Marianne. My pleasure. Um, I do want to say quickly, I did actually find it in me to actually um, file a complaint against somebody. I filed a human rights complaint, and then I got a lawyer who was, um, they had like 95 years of union (laughs) law (laughs) behind them. They were just a really powerful uh, legal uh, firm. And uh, and I did file a suit against uh, one of my workplace bullies. 
and and I did actually unfortunately I I didn't want any money I but I did get a settlement um, but I also had to sign uh, the confidentiality agreement which that I wouldn't <laughs> say anything um, I don't know if that changed after the me too I always keep you know nope. wondering if I should check that out so I still have to remain <laughs> silent yeah and it sil- you know- it silenced me yeah. I, I mean, NDAs um, are, are just a, a horrible, horrible practice uh, in, in this country. Uh, you know, uh, I've actually just joined with a, a group of uh, men and women to create a new organization. We, we were incorporated last week called the Employee Defense Fund. And, and we are looking uh, specifically at helping to uh, facilitate cases where, where people have been bullied but don't have the resources uh, to be able to, uh, you know, engage in the legal system, um, because NDAs not only silence us, they 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 are a huge burden because you then carry that story, you know, uh-huh. you carry that story, and the article that exactly. you read was exactly about that because. I know that people talk, right? They're, because I'm v- vocal about this online or publicly vocal about this. They talk about me. They know where these things happened. They, it becomes a she said, she said <laughs> conversation. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I can never, I can never add to that dialogue. I can never right. speak up, right? It's, it's a mm-hmm. very difficult burden to bear. And it is, it is borne by very many people. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately for me, I had a lot of people who were very supportive because this particular bully of the four, um, one of the, my bullies was a physician. But anyway, mm-hmm. um, this particular bully uh, was he bullied. He was a people jumper. He bullied one person after another, and they were mostly women in the workplace. And so mm-hmm. two of us actually sued. And, and I would like to contribute to your fund, by the way, um, because oh, I think it's you. very important because it was actually very helpful for me to take those steps and, and go through all of that and, you know, instill a little bit of fear in him perhaps. Yeah. But, but um, you know, it's, um, I lost my train of thought anyway. Well, <laughs> There's the well, PTSD there- coming out. <laughs> Yeah, there is some inherent privilege for both you and I, right, in being able to, one, afford to go through a legal process, but two, even to have um, a public voice. You use you the radio. I, I do a lot of writing on LinkedIn. Um, you know, mm-hmm. that is a privilege. And so many people suffer in silence. They're afraid, right? They can't afford to lose their jobs. Uh, and right. so they, yeah. And so I, I think that's the reason I do what I do. I do it for every single person out there who is um, really, I mean, crushed. By the time, the last experience I had, I lost my voice. I couldn't speak. The stress was so bad, my vocal cords, right, constricted. It was unbelievable. Yeah. It's so stressful. Quickly, we've got about a minute left. Um, What are some of the things people can do um, to empower themselves and stand up against workplace bullies? Yeah, you know, I'm going to just say two things that I think are really important. First, Talk to someone outside of the organization about what's happening to you, because often when you're being bullied, you don't see it. Uh, You you can't believe it's happening to you. And it often takes someone on the outside looking in to tell you what's really going on and that it's not okay. And and the second thing I'd say is um, document, document, document. Uh, I happen to love to journal. I didn't do it for uh, litigious reasons, but it ended up being very useful keep every email, every memo, every text message, um, and, and, and just document what is happening to you. Date it. 
who else was in the room, uh, who else heard or saw. Um, even if you spoke to a doctor or your family member, keep track of it all. Um, because, you know, as much as I want to say that HR is going to help you, I can tell you that more often than not, they have not. They're not. Absolutely. Yeah. Excellent advice, uh, do- especially that documentation, even if you are too stressed. Marianne, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure My having pleasure. you. Check out her writing, Marianne Kerr on LinkedIn. You got questions? She's got answers. The nurse is in for Nurse Talk. Welcome to the second hour of the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. In this hour, we're going to be talking about having a crush on someone else when you're married and also the importance of mental health. But right now, I want to talk about diabetes. If you live with diabetes or know somebody who does, especially type 1, you know about finger pricks, which you may have to do or they may have to do 10 to 12 times a day. Continuous glucose monitoring has changed all that, and now British Columbia Pharmacare is covering the cost. Joining me on the line is Dr. Tom Elliott. He's the medical director of BC Diabetes, and here's here to talk about continuous glucose monitoring technology, how it impacts people with diabetes that he sees in his clinical practice, and what coverage of this very important device means for the future of diabetes treatment in the province of British Columbia. Good evening, Dr. Elliott. How are you? Good evening, Maureen. I'm I'm great. I'm back in air conditioning and uh, feeling all calm. <laughs> excellent, <laughs> oh excellent. Where did you find it? <laughs> uh, in, in in the Yale Town condo. <laughs> <laughs> we should all have a Yale Town condo. <laughs> I know, I know. Unfortunately, you know, unfortunate, and so are eighty thousand British Columbians. Who my yes. estimate of the number who will now be eligible for CGM coverage. It's the most extraordinary thing, and I'm still pinching myself two weeks after the announcement. Um, you know, it, it's not totally straightforward. There's a, you know, there's a pharmacare deductible to deal with, but, you know, there's great rejoicing. It's, um, you know, CGM is, is part of the revolution in diabetes that's happening that, it, that gives access to people living with type 1 diabetes and type 2s who take multiple shots of insulin to, you know, better control living without fear of low sugar, sleeping through the night, having their, not worrying about their kids at school, um, and, 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 and the biggest prize of all, which is access to, to automatic insulin delivery or the artificial pancreas. It's the most amazing time to be a diabetes doctor. And that is absolutely fantastic, and, and you really uh, gave just a little bit of... Uh, a look into the lives of those living with type 1 diabetes. Just for the listeners, let's just review, if you don't mind, what type 1 diabetes actually is, when it's diagnosed, what are the symptoms, and how it impacts people's lives. So, so type 1 diabetes um, is typically diagnosed under the age of 35, half before the age of 18. Um, they require insulin to live. If they go without insulin for 48 hours, they die. So it is, you know, it's the definitive life-threatening condition. So mm-hmm. insulin, you know, was discovered in 1922 by Banting and Best Nobel Prize for Canada, yay. Um, and, and, and in the last hundred years, you know, there have been huge advances. The, the, big, the big problem now is that, well, we know that if you control sugar close to normal, then the people don't go blind, they don't have amputations, they don't have kidney failure, they don't get heart attacks and strokes. 
But the problem with being near normal is that you now go low. And when you go low, um, because sugar is the fuel of the brain, the brain stops working. And if it goes low enough, you have a seizure. Even lower, you die. When it's moderately low, you have altered judgment. You, you, you know, you can't drive safely. You can't, the brain doesn't work properly. So, you know, the, the issue we deal with now is, is avoiding the long-term complications of blindness, etc., but also avoiding the short-term complications of low sugar. And that's where CGM is so big because it gives a warning. It tells you, you know, you're going to go low in 20 minutes. You better eat or drink some pop. So that's, that's, the, big, that's the big deal. Absolutely. I have a friend who has a son who's around seven who was diagnosed about a year and a half ago. And, uh, you know, there was, they're very physically active, but she was always on high alert um, for his low blood sugar. Um, if they were out on the water, you know, doing some water sports or whatever, and he would all of a sudden, you know, become lightheaded and uh, they'd have to go home and, and, you know, always make sure they had food, always be prepared. Um, so it is quite a worry. And they are so young. As you say, I didn't even realize that half were diagnosed before 18 and, and, and most diagnosed under the age of 35. Um, but when it happens to children, so they're even that much more vulnerable and they don't understand it as well as adults do. I know. Can you imagine being a parent of someone with type 1 diabetes? It's just... You know, before this technology was available, Maureen, it was just terror, you know, living Mm -hmm. in terror. Having your entire life spent either pricking the finger 10 or 15 times a day to avoid these lows or living in terror that something bad was going to happen. And and that you as a parent, we all know we have that parental guilt that just comes with the birth of the child. Um, And, you know, thinking that you're... on, you know, at fault if something happened to that child or, you know, you yourself may not be sleeping through the night either. And so it can cause a lot of stress for parents um, living with a child or taking care of a child who has diabetes type one. Um, So as you said, this is a a pancreas, this is an insulin issue. Yeah. So the the, the cells that we were born with 10 billion insulin treating cells and and you know they gradually don't die off with normal aging just like we get wrinkles and our hair goes gray but in type 1 diabetes the immune system destroys them so all of a sudden mm-hmm. there's, there's no insulin being made right right and you mentioned uh adults with type 2 diabetes who may be insulin dependent and i know that um, is something that occurs as well and so their lives can uh, be problematic as well it can impact their careers their relationships um, you know, their ability, you know, to attend events or, or social functions. Um, and so this is as well something good for people with type 2 diabetes that are insulin dependent? Yes, it is. Um, you know, pe- most people with type 2 don't need to take insulin, but, but mm-hmm. 20 or 30% do. And, and the longer they're on insulin, the more like a type 1 they become. Their body just stops making insulin. Mm-hmm. So they've got to give one shot a day to stop their muscles and livers making sugar, and then they've got to take a shot every time they eat. So it's kind of like take type 1. So, you know, so that's why CGM is a big deal for them as well. And so you mentioned that BC Pharmacare a couple of weeks ago made an announcement that they will now be covering the cost. How does that work for patients? Well, these devices cost $10 a day retail. So once... 
a family hits its deductible, which is 2% of line 232 of their tax return, then Pharmacare <laughs> chips in, <laughs> believe me, they, Pharmacare chips in 70% of the cost. So, so Pharmacare, Pharmacare pays 7 bucks and the family pays 3 bucks. Uh-huh. When you hit 2%. When you hit 3% of it, pharma, Pharmacare pays the whole lot. Now, okay. the, the deductible is, re, is reset every January 1st, Maureen. And as, as delighted as I am about this announcement, my, my next um, campaign with Minister Dix is to majorly revise the deductible so, it, it, you know, so that ideally it would go away. And if it can't go mm-hmm. away, it should be made month, monthly. So you don't have to wait till May or June before... You've spent all that dough so that Pharmacare starts kicking in. Right, because there are going to be many families who are not going to be able to afford this. Am I correct in that? Yes, lots. And I should add, um, Maureen, that, um, that the Variety Variety, the Children's Charity, um, mm-hmm. is sponsoring CGM, uh, including the deductible for families with income below 65000 So. They should apply to Variety for for a uh, for a CGM grant. Oh, that's great to know. Yeah, that's very good because you hate to have you know uh, some little kid missing out because because it would affect their ability to you know participate in sports, their ability to you know play at recess, and and there may actually be that you know they may be. We were talking about workplace bullying before, but could be targets of bullying and if they always have to go and check their blood sugar you know there could be some mean kid there so so that's great to know i i will join you on that campaign to go to minister dix about um coverage you know eliminating the deductible because i i still think that makes it prohibitive for um many families and patients and this is actually one of the great advancements in diabetes care Thanks a lot, Maureen. We're going to set up a petition, so I'm, I'm going to be I'm going to call you and help you to plug help help you to plug it for us. Thank you. I I am all in, no problem whatsoever, because I I really I, I really stand behind it, and I think it's so important. And you know, our our children are our future. You know, and and health is critical, uh, which is why. I, why I do this show. So um, thank you so much, Dr. Tom Elliott, for all of your great work at the uh, as the director of BC Diabetes and um, and and best of luck in in all of the work and uh, you know caring for all of your patients because I know this is a very challenging disease. Thanks a lot, Maureen. It's time for the Bedroom Bulletin. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you, the final stroke of the Sunday Night Health Show. Thanks so much for being here with me this evening on this very hot night for many of you. (laughs) As temperatures soar, hopefully yours in one way and not in another. (laughs) Um, As temperatures soar across the country and hopefully in your relationship or in your marriage in particular, because guess what? You might be married and you might just have a crush on somebody else. Crushes happen. After all, you didn't ask your company to hire that hot guy, that ridiculously attractive new employee to work on your team, nor did you ever think that you'd find the woman in Starbucks who gets coffee the same time as you do every morning uh, extremely 
attractive or being very attracted to her. Crushes sound like they're a phenomenon that are something associated with high school, but adult crushes happen too. And they actually happen to people while they're married. It is inevitable. Even when you're married, you will be attracted to somebody else. Even if you love your partner, your spouse, and you have absolutely no desire to cheat on them. The thing is, is that a crush is exactly that. It is a crush. Now, somebody that you're attracted to, that you feel chemistry with, may actually rent space in your head for free. And also, you might find yourself thinking about them during a boring Zoom meeting these days. You don't necessarily have to worry about them impacting your marriage. And you are not alone. Even though you might think you're alone in your marriage, you are not. In a 2016 study of women published in the Journal of Sex and Marital Therapy, nearly 70% of women said they had a crush. And a crush is defined as sexual or romantic feelings on which they choose not to act on someone who wasn't their husband or long-term partner. So 70% of married women have a crush. Uh, I'm actually not too surprised by that. Um, lots of people talk about their crush, but having a crush isn't always damaging to a marriage. Um, the research researchers in this particular study came to some pretty rosy conclusions about the effects of crushes on marriages. They don't necessarily increase the chance that crushers will cheat on a partner. And, and there is also an associated sexual charge that can happen within the marriage. So if you're attracted to somebody else, the adrenaline rushes, you might actually feel good. Those feel-good hormones are scourging through your blood vessels, and it might actually make you um, have more arousal with your own partner. Of course, keep in mind, you're thinking about somebody else, and that could be a problem as well. But it also reminded the participants in the study of what they appreciated about their primary partners. Um, but the women certainly did enjoy that additional sexual charge, which I'm sure their partners or their spouses did as well. So um, there was actually benefit for both people in the marriage because, you know, it's always good to spice things up. And so it's good when you're attracted to somebody else and those feelings spill into your primary relationship. But crushes will always exist because literally they make you feel good all over physiologically. Because of that adrenaline that I mentioned, as well as dopamine, which is a neurotransmitter that is in control of your brain's pleasure center. And who doesn't like to feel good? Who doesn't like to feel that pleasure? And so a crush can inject excitement into your life, especially at a time when your life might feel dull and boring, or you may look at your spouse and think, ah, same old, same old, here we go again, lying next to you in bed. So it's a good feeling to have those feel-good hormones pumping through your body and reinforcing those pleasure sensations, those pleasure feelings. Um, so there is, you're going to have to do a little bit of a cost-benefit analysis here to see if having that crush is worth the health of your relationship. Because although a crush can feel very innocent, it can be fleeting, it can be fly-by-night, it, it can also actually intensify. And 
it's you can justify the innocence of it and it may not be all that innocent because there are healthy crushes and there are unhealthy crushes and as i say it is perfectly normal okay i don't like to use the word normal safe to find other people attract will be inappropriate if you decide to act on it um and so that's generally the you know the way one can look at it um, but the, as, as I said earlier, the fact that you have a crush on somebody doesn't mean that it's going to increase your desire to cheat, but you know what? You can actually cross over into that line. Fantasizing about a crush, for example, when you're masturbating doesn't veer into emotional infidelity for everybody, but for some people it does. And, and that's a very common thing. Many, many people will find somebody else attractive, maybe at work or maybe online, and they will think about them or look at their picture while they're masturbating. And so you, whether your behavior crosses that line and betrays the trust in your relationship, so this can be very different, like one in one marriage or relationship, somebody can be absolutely fine with their partner. I mean, I, I'm really not sure. <laughs> As I say this, <laughs> really not sure I believe this because a lot of People don't realize that their partners, even when they're married to them, even when they're intimate with them, they don't even realize that their partners masturbate. And some people get upset that their partners actually masturbate at all, never mind masturbate to the next door neighbor. Um, but that is something that in your primary relationship, you have to discuss and, and talk about and decide if that is, you know, crossing the line for you. Um, sometimes this crush can turn into a, an obsession. Um, even though you never plan to do anything physical with the person or you never plan to meet them or anything, but you can be preoccupied with that crush and it can be very tempting to deny it, but it can draw attention away from your primary partner. So for example, if your partner, your husband or your wife goes to bed and then you stay up later and you go online and you are creeping their Facebook page or their link book page, LinkedIn page or their Instagram it isn't exactly cheating, but it's not actually strengthening your relationship either. And so it can sort of take you away. Or if you're texting with somebody and all of a sudden you start to share, just a friend, you're texting with a friend from work and all of a sudden you decide to share something very intimate, um, that can also be problematic. But the, just keep in mind that the more time you spend investing in or engaging in that crush, the more you could potentially be endangering your primary relationship. So we always need to take stock when we're involved in something like this and decide if this is a, if you are entering a danger zone, is this daydreaming about somebody while you're driving home from work? Is that going to be problematic? Um, you know, are some of the things you're doing, some of the behaviors you're doing, like intentionally trying to run into somebody, is that problematic? Um, you know, are you looking to, Increase your exposure to the, the crush, which ups that risk that it could progress to a physical relationship. Are you flirting with that particular person? Are you, um, you know, not doing anything if that other person that you have the crush on crosses the line toward you? The people who tend to develop frequent crushes are those thrill-seeking types, and they tend to have chronic crushes because they find it difficult to stop wondering what else might be out there. That's why Tinder is so dangerous for that type of a person, for that thrill-seeking type of person, because it's a smorgasbord and they, they want to know what's next. What will feed their appetite next? And just ask yourself, does this happen to you? If you want to stay content in your long-term relationship, you may need actually need to seek counsel 
um, the, the services of a therapist to help you stop with that type of behavior. Um, you know, it, and some people think, well, if uh, my husband or my wife has a, a crush on somebody else, there must be something wrong in our relationship. But that's not necessarily true. The theory is that when people aren't happy, they might retreat into this fantasy crush world as an escape. That, that's kind of the, the common word. But that's not necessarily the case. But crushes may crop up because you're feeling unfulfilled in your relationship. It doesn't necessarily mean there's something wrong at home, but there could be something missing with you, not necessarily your relationship. So for example, exes, you know, what could that have been like? Were you regretful of not ending up with your ex or thinking you might have uh, missed that, that you might be missing your carefree days? And, and so things like that can actually um, are, are more the cause or the reason for the, uh, why somebody may have a crush. And of course, we know when a crush crosses the line. <laughs> Be brutally honest with yourself. Um, if your crush is hurting your relationship, or if you have decided to go to the dark side and have decided to actually cheat on your partner, um, you will know that crushes are a risky behavior for you. And it's at that time that you might seek help as well. Um, so, you know, there are ways to handle having a crush when you are married and it's not unusual, but it's very important to be self-aware about what is happening. And, and you want to consciously or, or mindfully redirect that energy back into your primary relationship as quickly as possible. That's if you want to stay married anyhow. <laughs> um, although lots of people cheat throughout their marriage and lots of people have crushes and, and the marriage carries on because, uh, as somebody recently, I think it was, it was a comment on one of my social media feeds. And she said that there's so many married men on a particular dating site. And she said, um, you know, why they're so lonely and they're not having sex in their marriage. And, and she said, why are they on, why do they stay? That was the question. And I just answered, they stay for the kids, the in-laws, the country club, the neighbors, the, the finances. I said, you name it, they stay for it. And she said, Thank you for answering that. She said, I used to feel so sorry for them being lonely in the relationship. But, you know, really, she's wasting her energy feeling sorry for them. And if you are one of those people that is online dating and you are married, you know, it's something to take a look at yourself or, or the relationship. But certainly there's lots of help out there for you um, so that you can have a healthy relationship or a healthy life. You know, so not all marriages are meant to um, remain um, together for, for the duration until death do you part, especially if you feel like killing them. Uh, developing an infatuation can actually be a positive thing for a relationship. So keep that in mind. Um, and so remember that you can feel sexually charged as a result and you, it might lead to you feeling a little bit better and, and injecting a little spice into your primary relationship. So build on the existing strengths of your relationship to add those crush ingredients back in, like spending time together, a little novelty. So maybe bring some sex toys into the, into the bedroom, emotional intimacy, being flirtatious and being fun, because that is how you will be stronger and you will be stronger in your marriage, and you will be able to handle that crush again and again and again, because that'll happen.
Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.